Previously on Heavy Metal Historian, we studied the influence of literature on metal and recently explored vampires and werewolves and the impact they've had on the genre as well. We focused on the influence of subgenres such as industrial metal and power metal, but also looked at the inspiration set forth by early metal as well. Now, we voyage back in time to examine the emergence of the bands that followed Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, Uriah Heat, Deep Purple, and Blue Cheer of the early metal movement. As the scene was forming up in the 70s, the word metal began being used to describe the sound, and bands were beginning to appear that would be the first to wear the label heavy metal with pride. From the shock rock of Alice Cooper and Kiss in the United States, to the aggressive Aussie attitude down under of ACDC, and to the metal gods themselves, Judas Priest, we investigate the rise of traditional heavy metal. Welcome to our 35th episode, I'm Greg Davies, your Heavy Metal Historian. In our very first episode of Heavy Metal Historian, we had a glance at four of the bands from early metal that were responsible for the very origins of the genre, Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, and Blue Cheer. There were other bands during the era that were key influencers as well, such as Uriah Heep and Cream, reaching across the scope from blues rock to hard rock to progressive. But for this episode... We're looking into the groups that followed into the footsteps of those who were groundbreaking the metal movement. These are the bands that were directly influenced by these pioneers, and among them, some were the first few groups to embrace the genre title of heavy metal. Retrospectively, looking back at those formative years, the genre period has been termed as traditional heavy metal, or classic heavy metal. But what is traditional heavy metal? What makes a group fit into this category? Wikipedia defines traditional heavy metal as the seminal genre of heavy metal music before the genre evolved and splintered into many different styles and subgenres. intention for this episode is to be a bit more specific. Our definition of traditional heavy metal encompasses groups who gained commercial success after the breakthroughs of Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple and Blue Cheer, but came out before the new wave of British heavy metal. They are the bands that emerged between 1970 and 1978 across the world before subgenres like glam metal, thrash metal or black metal were even started. It's important to point out that there are many bands that have been retrospectively added into classic metal because of the impact they've had afterwards. Examples of this include Iron Maiden and Ozzy Osbourne's solo career. It is absolutely true that both were instrumental influences in the history of heavy metal. However, the truth is, Maiden came much later, within the rise of the new wave of British heavy metal, and Ozzy's solo career kicked off in 1980. So we're looking specifically at the years between 1970 and 1978. 
consider it the era between Black Sabbath and the new wave of British heavy metal. Before we dive into the bands of traditional heavy metal, it's important to review the name of heavy metal, as we discussed in episode 3. The term heavy metal has been used by the likes of Steppenwolf and William S. Burroughs in their works before it was adopted by groups as a unifying title for the music they made. The honest truth is that many of the early metal bands in the first half of the 1970s weren't even really sure what to call their own noise. Several of the groups from both the early metal and traditional heavy metal scene referred to their music by different titles. Rock, blues rock, hard rock, downer rock, thunder rock, and more. The reality is, while all of these artists fit into metal in some way or form, it was after the adoption of the name heavy metal that the labels were applied to them. The use of the label simply happened little by little over time and was not necessarily an immediate creation that was given to one band overnight. As it turns out, there was definitely not just one person or artist to magically create the genre label of heavy metal and apply it to a band on a specific day in history. The fact is, the name slowly emerged and evolved from 1960s art, music and literature. It was later applied to accurately describe a musical movement after Judas Priest embraced the genre name to describe their sound. There was a period, wasn't there, where people were really sort of um, not admitting that they were metal, but uh, I think Priest, were, we always maintain that we were proud to fly the flag of metal. We are who we are, we believe in ourselves, we're strong about what we what we feel we want to do. So, yeah, th- right right from the very beginning, that's, that's all we ever wanted to be known as in Judas Priest was we're heavy metal. Judas Priest fits into the story much later. To begin with, many of the early metal bands, as well as the bands of the British blues boom of the 1960s, were massive influences on musicians across the world. It was across the Atlantic, in the United States, where the next generation of metal bands began to emerge. Out of America, one of the first to arise in traditional heavy metal would also be a group that would be instrumental in developing the visual genre of shock rock even further. The Alice Cooper Band began as more of an experimental avant-garde group with close connections to Frank Zappa, but by 1971 they had refined their sound and their image. With the growth of blues rock and early metal, there was a huge emphasis on guitar heroes, rock and roll heroes. Alice Cooper became the visual response, a rock and roll villain, a vampiric shock rock creature of the night 
that would be punished for his crimes on stage by execution, usually via guillotine. Following in Cooper's footsteps was New York City shock rock outfit KISS. Founded in 1973, the outfit pushed their theatrical performance on stage to the next logical extreme. Accompanying the music were smoking guitars, blood spitting, fire breathing, pyrotechnics and much more. The KISS show became an experience and word of mouth spread on how much of an impact the live shows had on people. Regrettably, for their first three albums, this word of mouth didn't translate into early record sales. It was a different world back then compared to now. There were no viral music videos or YouTube. There was no internet or Bandcamp or Spotify. Music groups had to find their own ways and other ways of spreading word about their sound. And back then, it was on radio or through touring. Unlike Alice Cooper, KISS had no early radio success. But their touring and live shows were the calling card for the band. As a result, the band and their record label, Casablanca, decided to release a live album. It was to be something of a memento for fans that had been to concerts or an item for fans yet to experience the live show. It was called Kiss Alive, and the record was a smash success for the band, propelling them into major commercial and touring dominance in the US for the rest of the 70s. On the touring circuit, one of KISS's biggest challengers was Aerosmith. The group originated with roots of blues rock and heavy influence from bands like the Rolling Stones. 
Coming out of Boston with origins in the late 1960s, the outfit was founded by Steven Tyler, Joe Perry, Tom Hamilton, and Joey Kramer. Aerosmith were later signed to Columbia Records in 1972 with their debut album containing the classic song Dream On. The tune was later re-released to considerable popularity after the band broke into mainstream commercial success with their 1975 album Toys in the Attic. The LP featured songs like Sweet Emotion and Walk This Way. Elsewhere, back across the Atlantic in the United Kingdom, a new generation of bands was beginning to emerge also. One of the most prominent was Queen, one of the few groups to take the harder edge of early metal, but at the same time have the ability to push beyond the musical expectations of their sound. Led by vocalist Freddie Mercury, along with guitarist Brian May, John Deacon on the bass and Roger Taylor on drums, it was a fantastically progressive approach. Their openness to experimentation allowed the band to come up with songs like Bohemian Rhapsody, but still be able to rock out with tunes like Tie Your Mother Down. Simultaneously, coming out of Wales was one of the earliest heavy metal bands to have a key influence on both the new wave of British heavy metal and the later thrash metal style. Budgie, originally founded in the late 1960s, eventually evolved into a more heavier rock-sounding band before finally experiencing commercial success in the 1970s. The group released their debut self-titled album in 1971 and then followed up with Squawk in 1972. The band was later known for numbers like Breadfan and Crash Course in Brain Surgery after they were covered by Metallica in the 1980s.
Over in Scotland, the traditional metal generation continued with Nazareth. The group originated with a hard rock approach to their music, enjoying some successes in the UK with their self-titled debut LP in 1971 and the follow-up, Exercises, in 1972. Nazareth declared their music to be loud and proud in the title of their 1973 record. They followed up with a major breakthrough internationally with their 1975 album Hair of the Dog. The album contained the ballad Love Hurts, which was a vast success, but metalheads remember the album for its title track, which has been covered by many who followed them. Hair of the Dog. Outside of the UK, traditional heavy metal was developing elsewhere also. In fact, right next door in Ireland, one of the most influential traditional metal bands would arise, writing and recording some of the most memorable songs of all time. That band's name was Thin Lizzy. Formed out of Dublin and led by charismatic bassist and vocalist Phil Lynott, the band smashed through local popularity and onto the international scene with major radio and touring successes. Some of their most memorable and successful songs include Whiskey in the Jar, Jailbreak, and the boys are back in town. Over in Germany, groups began jumping into the heavy metal scene as well, with the development of new bands that would be major influences to future artists. Scorpions appeared during the 1970s, as did the band called Accept, both of whom would experience some major commercial hits in the US during the 1980s. 
Running Wild also rose during the 1970s, eventually taking on a pirate-theme approach to their metal, which would be of major influence to the future power metal movements, though most of their work would appear during the following decade. Across the planet, however, down under in Australia, a new band was appearing that would deliver ferociousness in their sound that had been previously unheard of up until that point. Fronted by captivating frontman Bon Scott, with the schoolboy outfit-wearing guitarist Angus Young, ACDC reinvented hard rock in 1970s Australia. They are almost single-handedly responsible for developing the genre known as Aussie pub rock, yet still fitting into the traditional heavy metal vibe. Australia promoted several other bands during the decade that would push hard music even further, while groups like Radio Birdman and The Saints both furthered metal and punk in the latter part of the decade. One of the more well-known groups, The Angels, coming from Adelaide would be of major influence to future metal bands. Founded in South Australia, The Angels eventually moved to Sydney and became known for their aggressive music as well. The group was signed to a major label in 1975 and became legendary in Australia, with their debut single in 1976, Am I ever going to see your face again?
But aside from these groups, imaginably one of the most influential of the traditional heavy metal bands from Australia during the time was Rose Tattoo. Formed in 1976 in Sydney, the outfit was fronted by Angry Anderson, meshing hard rock and blues rock into a sound that's often been referred to as more aggressive than ACDC at the time. The outfit signed to Albert Productions and released their debut album in 1978. Rose Tattoo would be a major influence on future bands like Guns N' Roses, Metallica, and many more, putting out songs like Bad Boy For Love, Nice Boys, We Can't Be Beaten, and Rock and Roll Outlaw. England, however, things were about to change. As mentioned earlier, the term heavy metal had been tossed around and about in various vernaculars across the world during the decade. But the first band to embrace the title to describe their own sound was Judas Priest. Formed in Birmingham in 1969, the band had gathered a dedicated following during the 1970s. Rob Halford joined the group before the release of the debut album Rockarola in 1974 and added an almost operatic style of screaming vocals to the band. KK Downing and Glenn Tipton would lead a double guitar attack, solidifying the sound and identity of the group. They would later benefit from a second wind of success during the new wave of British heavy metal, and then broke through into international success with 1980s British Steel. More importantly, however, Judas Priest was definitively the first group to identify themselves as heavy metal and they did so right out of the gate with their first several releases. Help and for letter. 
ambition, ship position, yet no one knows from where he comes. In 1975, an additional band arose that would become one of the most important groups from the traditional metal movement. Although they'd only ever considered themselves rock and roll, the band to become known as Motorhead would most certainly be part of the traditional heavy metal era. They were also embraced by the later punk movement and the new wave of British heavy metal. Motorhead were one of the first groups to transcend a variety of genres. Fronted by the legendary Lemmy Kilmister on the bass, Motorhead would be instrumental in developing specific sounds and styles musically. They would later be copied and mimicked by several groups who would follow them. The band would continue across several decades, their longevity assured by a determination to stay true to their musical identity. It was around this era when proto-subgenres of heavy metal began to emerge. While the subgenres themselves would not truly establish and assert themselves into the latter 70s and into the 80s, the beginnings began to appear. Proto-power metal was developing, with key works by Ronnie James Dio and Richie Blackmore and Rainbow forming a leading bulk of the influence. Dio would later also work in Black Sabbath, replacing Ozzy Osbourne, and then on his own solo project simply titled Dio. Sabotage would also emerge during the late 1970s and would be an integral band in developing both the power metal and progressive metal scenes during the 1980s. And Manila Road, founded in Kansas in 1977, would forge their early footsteps in traditional heavy metal and develop a classic sound that would help influence the development of power metal too.
glam metal had its prototypical beginnings during the era as well, while the first four major bands that influenced the future style would also be considered a part of traditional heavy metal as well. Quiet Riot had their origins in the mid-70s, well before they would have their metal health leap forward in the 1980s. And the members of Twisted Sister were actually contemporaries of KISS, performing since 1972, before they also would have their commercial success during the 80s. Dokken's beginnings lay in 1978, following in the footsteps of the traditional metal outfits of the era. They also would enjoy great success much later. But the biggest of all four of these bands was Van Halen. Formed in the mid-70s and found by Gene Simmons of KISS, the group established a new path for metal that would be emulated by many across the following decade. Meanwhile, back in England, the mainstream breakthrough of punk rock was underway. Bands like Sex Pistols, The Clash, The Damned and more were dominating the scene of the era, and for many it appeared the era of traditional heavy metal was dead. From one perspective, they would be right, but metal overall was not dead. The traditional heavy metal movement may have had its period from 1970 to 1978, but the legacy would be upheld by the bands to emerge in the new wave of British heavy metal. Groups like Iron Maiden, Raven and Venom would all play key roles in the movement, but leading the charge of these new bands would be Diamond Head, a band that would be a key influence to the next generation of metal also.
From 1970 to 1978, a second generation of metal known as traditional heavy metal followed in the footprints of the likes of Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin. These groups, from KISS to ACDC to Judas Priest and beyond, were all key central bands in developing the worldwide metal subculture. If not for any of these bands, the scene would be completely different today. All of them were major influences for future subgenres of metal, from glam metal to thrash metal to death metal to black metal and beyond. We owe many of these subgenres to the bands that came before them, and that's why these groups of the traditional heavy metal movement will be considered as being crucial to the history of heavy metal eternally. And now it's time for a prehistoric mosh. If there was a group that bridged the gap between the blues boom in the UK in the 1960s and the early stages of early metal, then it would be the Yardbirds. Formed in 1963, the band would be responsible for beginning the careers of guitar players like Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton and Jimmy Page. Moreover, the emergence of Led Zeppelin evolved out of the Yardbirds. But during their height, the Yardbirds added a lower and heavier facet to their blues sound and would be a massive influence on the bands of the early metal and traditional heavy metal movements. From 1965, from their album Having a Rave Up, the band made a new and heavier arrangement of the blues standard Train Kept a Rollin', a version that would be covered by many bands that would follow them, including Aerosmith, Motorhead, Twisted Sister, and more. Let's take a listen. Now let's have a look at this week in Metal News. 
Two men are missing after attending the Rocklahoma Festival in Pryor, Oklahoma. Cody Parrick and Ben Babar were last seen Saturday, May 23, when they were to leave the event for work. The state of Oklahoma has been suffering from unprecedented flooding and flash flooding over the last week, with several bands cancelling performances at the festival due to the inclement weather. Tornadic storms with heavy flash flooding passed through the region Saturday night, and it's feared the two were caught up in the weather. Flooding has been widespread across Oklahoma and Texas. Bill Ward reunited with Black Sabbath members Tony Iommi and Geezer Butler on stage to accept a Lifetime Achievement Award at this year's Ivor Novello Awards. His appearance fueled speculation that a reconciliation between members was underway. However, Ward followed the event by stating until his dispute with Ozzy Osbourne is resolved, he will not be participating in any Black Sabbath activities. Slayer have announced the title and release date of their new upcoming album. The name of the release will be Repentless, and they have scheduled it to hit the streets on September 11 this year. The name of the album comes from the title track, which Kerry King wrote in memory of late guitarist Jeff Hanneman. Meanwhile, fellow Thrashers Anthrax are in the studio, continuing work on their next album. Scott Ian from the band stated the group have a considerable amount of material, explaining they have been working on 17 songs in preparation for the release. The next Anthrax album is due for release in either late 2015 or early 2016. Cattle Decapitation have announced their new album will be entitled The Anthropocene Extinction, and that former Pantera vocalist Phil Anselmo will be guesting on the release. The album was produced by Dave Otero and is scheduled to be released on August 7. Also on the new release schedule is Clutch, who will be putting out their new album, Psychic Warfare, as well. Song titles on the new release include X-Ray Visions, Son of Virginia, and Decapitation Blues. The new album is due for release in September of this year. Hardcore band Terror will additionally be releasing their album this year, titled The 25th Hour, and is scheduled for release on August 7. A new song from the release, The Solution, is currently streaming online and can be heard over at YouTube. Oakland metal group High on Fire have released their first single from their upcoming seventh studio album. Entitled The Black Plot, the song is currently streaming over at Rolling Stone and comes from the upcoming Luminiferous album, scheduled for release on June 23. More wars of words are happening between Sebastian Bach and his former band Skid Row, with members of the band claiming to have written all of their songs without Bach. The ex-vocalist was infuriated by the claims and shot back at Skid Row on an episode of Snyder Comments with Dee Snyder, stating that the assertions were, quote, a fucking pile of shit. And finally, Seatsmart's Andrew Powell Morse set out using writing analysis tools to find out which bands wrote the most intelligent lyrics. Among the rock and metal acts in the list, Nickelback took the top spot and were, wait, Nickelback have more intelligent lyrics? What the fuck is this? No, sorry, I'm done. No, man. I'm a pickleback. For fuck's sake. God damn it. Now that I'm over my little hissy fit, remember that links for the news can be found in the show notes for this episode over at heavymetal666.com. And if you come across any metal news, share it with us by posting the link at reddit.com slash r slash metal news. On the next Heavy Metal Historian, we return to looking into horror folklore and how it influenced literature, movies, and music. This time, we zone in on the creature that is the most popular in the current era, the zombie. We turn back time to find out where the legends came from 
and how they inspired the pop culture of the 20th and 21st centuries. We examine how the concept of zombies has influenced metal and recognize some of the key metal songs exploring the idea of a zombie apocalypse. After looking at the mythos of vampires and werewolves, we now turn to zombies and heavy metal. Subscribe to Heavy Metal Historian at iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook or at Metal Podcast 666 on Twitter. Email us at metalpodcast666 at gmail.com if there are subjects you'd like Heavy Metal Historian to investigate or report on, or if you have questions you would like for us to answer on a future episode. You can also hear me with Aaron Chavara on the Blendover Podcast, bringing you the news that the news isn't covering over at blendover.com. We will catch you on the next Heavy Metal Historian, Hails and Horns, and until next time, Judas Priest was the first band to identify their music as heavy metal, so it feels right to close out this episode with them. Back in their early days, the band began covering a song originally by Joan Baez called Diamonds and Rust, pushing the folk classic into more of a heavy metal variation. The tune ended up on Judas Priest's 1977 album Sin After Sin, but the band were playing the song far earlier than this. During the rock roller era, the group would rehearse the number, and it's been said that they even played it live a few times. During the sessions for 1976's Sad Wings of Destiny, Rob Halford and the Metal Gods recorded a version of the song, but it never ended up on the album. Recorded in 1976, here is Judas Priest's first demo version of Diamonds and Rust as our closing headbanger. Things hate